1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Myra Bradwell the right to practice law specifically because she was a woman. Ms. Bradwell apprenticed, passed the Illinois bar exam, and had support from legal professionals. But the decision to deny her the right to practice law rested on the idea that women were, quote, never contemplated, unquote, to be members of the bar. Things have changed since then, but not without the sacrifice and fortitude of female lawyers. In our first two seasons, we met with a dozen or so female jurists who talked about their backgrounds and paths to get on the bench. This season, we'll expand on those stories and interview lawyers throughout the state of Florida who are trailblazers in their practice areas and role models for male and female attorneys everywhere. Welcome to another episode of Never Contemplated. I'm your host, Huddle Desai. Florida's judicial system is comprised of the Supreme Court, six district courts of appeal, 20 circuit courts, and 60 county courts. The Florida Supreme Court is the highest appellate court in Florida. As we discussed during Justice Grosshand's episode, the Supreme Court was established in 1845. At that time, the entire court was made up of male judges. There are currently six district courts of appeal in Florida located in Tallahassee, Tampa, Miami, West Palm Beach, Daytona Beach, and Lakeland. The first female justice to the Florida Supreme Court was Rosemary Barquette and was appointed in 1985. Since then, Barbara Pariente, Peggy Quince, Barbara Lagoa, Jamie Grosshand, Renatha Francis, and today's guest, Meredith Sasso, have all served or are serving on the Florida Supreme Court. The recently appointed Justice Sasso has a history of service to the state of Florida. She served as Chief Deputy General Counsel to Governor Rick Scott and also served on the 5th and 6th District Courts of Appeal. She was selected by her fellow appellate judges to serve as the chief judge of the 6th District Court. She was there for only a short while before being elevated to the Florida Supreme Court in May of 2023. Justice Sasso received both her law degrees and undergraduate degrees from University of Florida. Welcome, Justice Sasso, and thank you for agreeing to be interviewed on Never Contemplated. I know this uh, isn't your first interview, but for our listeners that don't know you, I'd like to start at the beginning of your story. How are you today? (laughs) I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. Where are you located right now? I am in Orlando. Um, I work out of my home office for the most part. So I know you grew up in Tallahassee, uh, where the Supreme Court is located. Tell us what it was like growing up in the state's capital. Yeah, so um, Tallahassee's grown up a lot since I grew up there. Um, But I think, you know, it was it's a great town to grow up in. It's very family oriented. Um, What I like about Tallahassee is that when there's one event, like, for example, the Greek Food Fest, the entire community is at that one event. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's quite different Gro- with my kids growing up in Orlando. There's always 250 different things happening at any given moment. Um, and so Tallahassee feels like a true community. Um, but of course, I grew up surrounded by government. Uh, my parents, my dad worked as a staff attorney for the legislature. Um, my mom worked in state government for a little bit, but then spent most of her time in the private sector. Uh, but I grew up, you know, I would go to my dad's office after school, time myself running up the Capitol stairs, get a notepad and draft a little bill that I would submit to him. Um, so, so very much grew up ingrained in government. 
what committee was he staff for or was it an office? Yeah, I, for the most part, he was Health and Human Services. Um, and that was always kind of his area. He had various positions within that field, but for the most part, stayed in Health and Human Services. I grew up in Tallahassee too, and it's it has grown. And sometimes I think it was a hard thing to not have anything else to do except for that one Greek food festival on the weekend. Right. <laughs> it, we, call, we call it the boomerang town, which is it's good to go and then come back. You know, that's right. Bring that's things right. Back. Yeah. It was also the land of Bobby Bowden. And I know you're you went to UF. Uh, how was that transition? <laughs> you know, I grew up such a diehard FSU fan. I remember in 1993 when FSU won the national championship and I went to yeah. Charlie Ward's Heisman ceremony at Dope Campbell Stadium. And I got a piece of grass from the field and I put it in a Ziploc bagging and I saved it. And, <laughs> um, I remember going to a fellowship of Christian athletes meeting in high school and, and meeting Bobby Bowden for the first time and walking up to him and he stuck it out his hand and said, I'm Bobby Bowden. Nice to meet you. And I just said, I know who you are. <laughs> I was just so starstruck. I forgot my manners. Um, but I tell people that at my very first home football game at UF, I saw the light and realized that I had been brainwashed for 18 years. And in fact, the best football team in the country is the Florida Gators. Um, and so I'm equally as diehard for the Gators now. <laughs> I think we have some listeners that may disagree with you, but, uh, <laughs> reasonable minds can differ, I guess. Yes. I, uh, I'm 50, 50. I went to FSU undergrad and cheered for the football team, uh, including Charlie Ward and then, and then went to Gainesville for law school. But let me just step back a minute. And you mentioned that you in high school were an athlete. What, what kind of things did you do in high school? Yeah, so in high school, my main sport was volleyball. I started my freshman year and played high school season and club season. Um, and then my senior year, because I didn't need to play club volleyball anymore, I did not want to pursue um, a scholarship in college. I ended up rowing with the crew team my spring semester of my senior year. Um, and that was that was really fun. I have a lot of great memories from that time period. Yeah, so Tallahassee still has a, a capital city rowing, which my yeah. daughter is rowing for, and oh, it's a great, great. Yeah, it's a great way to make friends, and also uh, we had have had several judges that have said that being on a sports team helped them uh, in life uh, in general. You think rowing had any skills that you can apply to your life today? Oh, absolutely. I think just um, with with any team sport, any physical sport. Um, being used to sitting in discomfort. You know, I, I have a, I think I've developed a pretty high pain tolerance. Um, and I know from my experience in sports that I can push through, you know, pain is temporary. They always say pain is temporary, pride is forever. But, you know, you can get through these really hard moments, whether it's long bouts of concentration or just a really intense period at work, knowing that one day you're going to come out on the other side. Um, and so just that determination and grit really, I developed in team sports. Uh, and then of course, working with people and, and knowing how much sweeter a shared victory is versus, versus an individual victory. Um, and on the flip side, you know, disappointments are much easier to handle when you handle it with a team than when you handle it on your own. So I think I've, I, you know, through friendships, we have our own little team now. Um, and it's just, it just makes life a lot sweeter going through it with a team. 
Well, other than sports, uh, did you know in high school that you wanted to be an attorney? I did not. I, I'm a bit of a contrarian and there's a lot of attorneys and law adjacent people in Tallahassee. And so um, I was always very passionate about civic engagement. My grandfather and my dad came over from Cuba. And so I grew up hearing stories that my grandfather would tell. Um, I heard stories from my Cuban relatives that came over on visas would tell. And so I pretty quickly developed a conclusion that the rule of law is very unique in this country and what makes our country great. Uh, so I always, I always had an interest in that, but that manifested just as kind of typical civic engagement. I wanted to get involved in government. I did youth in government in high school and those sorts of things. Um, but I thought I wanted to be more of like the crisis management press secretary side of government than the law related side. I'm envisioning scandal or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually, yeah. And then, you know, in in 2001, right, exactly. In 2001, um, of course, when 9-11 happened, which was my freshman year in undergrad, um, which only cemented my, my desire to serve, but I was watching Ari Fleischer on the news every day. It was W's press secretary at the time. And so that was kind of my model. It was like, I want to be Ari Fleischer when I grow up. Well, uh, you kind of diverted from that. But before then, I know your other grandfather was in World War II. Um, tell us a little bit about the stories that you heard in your household from both both your grandparents. Yeah. So my, well, my maternal grandfather, my, my dad, my mom's grandfather, um, he wanted to go to med school. But at the time, his brother was serving in the Air Force in World War II. And he you know, recalls receiving a letter from his brother saying, gosh, I would just, I would love to just have a Coca-Cola right now. And my grandfather was not enlisted, but he volunteered for the merchant Marines. And so um, the merchant Marines, because they were a a volunteer force, they didn't have a lot of protection. Um, So it was actually a very risky undertaking, but he, he wanted to get the supplies to the soldiers and his brother was one of them. And so he volunteered for the merchant Marines and um, served in that capacity that dashed his med school dreams though. And so they ended up, him and his brother ended up going into a family business. Um, But it was just, you know, hearing his stories, I, he ended up serving in the auxiliary coast guard. And so I would go along on some of his patrols with him on the auxiliary coast guard and it, there was just this mentality in my family that you serve your country, that this country is worth fighting for, this country is worth fleeing to. And again, it always came back to the rule of law for me. It sounds like your father was a staff attorney. Were any of your grandparents ended up in the law? Sorry. And I said staff attorney because I'm so used to saying that now as a staff analyst. He was not an attorney. <laughs> so there's actually no... Uh, no attorneys in my immediate family, neither my mom or my dad is an attorney. Um, I have an uncle who's a, an attorney in Alabama, uh, but he was the only attorney in my family. So I didn't have a great idea of what that job really was. Well, before we get to how you got to law school, what did you major in at UF? So I majored in public relations and political science. I thought those that would those two subjects would merge to create this kind of, you know, communications fixer sort of career that I had envisioned. Did you do any activities outside of, I think you said, were you still rowing? 
I, I did club rowing for a little bit at UF, um, but honestly, it was 5.30 a.m. practices. <laughs> you know, I, I, never, I never kind of tricked myself into thinking I was going to be any sort of professional athlete. So I pretty quickly just wanted to turn my attention to studies. So um, I was a resident assistant, actually, in undergrad. So that was my main extracurricular um, and pretty involved with the division of housing. So super nerdy. It's okay to be nerdy. Well, you ended up at the University of Florida for law school as well. Uh, What made you apply to law school? So um, I did my first couple of internships in public relations and um, enjoyed it, but realized I think I kind of succumbed to the law. You know, I, I think what really appealed to me about the advocating was working through puzzles, um, you know, applying rules to hard situations. And I think that if I had not done law, I would have missed the concreteness that law offers and just the rich legal tradition um, and kind of philosophical underpinnings of the law, which was just missing in something like public relations, at least for me. So um, my junior year in undergrad, I remember um, telling my comrades at the, the uh, division of housing that I was going to be resigning as an RA and I was going to turn my attention to um, trying to get into law school. Well, you ended up going to law school and I know you were on the moot court team. Uh, tell us about that experience. Yeah, that was probably my favorite part of law school because um, I found kind of like the esoteric discussions in law school a little frustrating at the time, although it's, it's ironic now because I spend my free time reading philosophy. But at the time, I just wanted to just tell me how to do the job so I can go out and make money. I just want to know what I need to do. And moot court was very practical. It was very practical skills. It was something that I felt like I could directly apply to my practice. Um, and it was just fun. It was fun. We were uh, self-organized. We didn't have a lot of faculty involvement. So we would just work together to try to make each other better. Uh, did it, my first competition was in Washington, D.C. in an antitrust competition. And I remember going to a cocktail party after the competition and talking to judges and thinking it was so cool that, you know, actual judges would come just talk to law students. And turns out they're just normal people. You know, it was all it was all very exciting as a law student. After law school, you ended up in private practice. Where did you end up working? I ended up working at a firm in Stewart, Florida. Um, I, coming from Tallahassee, decided that I wanted to work in the real part of Florida, which is South Florida. And um, so I think people I, might disagree about that as well, but go yeah. ahead. <laughs> yeah. So um, obviously that didn't work out too long for me. No, but I, I went down there. Um, it was 2008. So I was actually very fortunate to have a job. They had offered me a job in law school and they did not pull my offer. Although a lot of my um, colleagues in law school were having offers pulled at that time. And it was a really wonderful firm to start out with. They did everything except for criminal and bankruptcy. And I was one of two associates. So I got to work with a lot of different partners on a lot of different subject matters. I got to work, um, start out right away with some appellate work because there was a partner doing appellate work who who had clerked for the fourth DCA. And she helped me a lot with writing. Um, got, you know, some in-person hearing time right away and just a really professional group of lawyers. I remember they took me to a, an attorney fee hearing right away so I could see what it means to defend your time 
in court under oath, which really um, helped oh, every, me. Every law student should do that. Don't I you think? really, I really agree, especially right away, because I can, I can assure you, my billing got real tight <laughs> after that. Um, but uh, I stayed there for a year and then um, ended up getting a job in Orlando to move to be closer to my now husband. So you end up in Orlando. I know that you were active at that time with Guardian Ad Litem. Um, tell us a little bit about what Guardian Ad Litem does and what you what your experience was. Yeah, so Orlando, the Orange County area, has a pretty robust Guardian Ad Litem system, and um, I had kind of I had one ongoing case, and um, the mom of that child ended up having another child during the pendency of that case. So I had two, I had both the children from that mom. And it was, it was pretty much, it was weekly visits with the child, um, court appearances and that sort of thing. And I, I took probably two lessons from it. The first was, um, how thankful I was to the, to the women who had kind of taken these children on. Um, I remember one of them was a was the child's paternal grandmother. And she sat me down and gave me some advice for if I did have kids, you know, what I should do and what I should plan to do and not do. Um, and she was great. And then the other was kind of like embarrassingly, um, because this was not my, this was not the cases that I was making money on. You know, the first court hearing that I went into, um, I, I did not really fully understand that area of law. And I remember the judge just like really emphasized how important it was to treat this case like I would any other case that I'm making money off of. For those who don't know what guardian ad litem is, tell us what it does. Yeah. So the, so in, in any case involving a child, like a termination case, for example, this was a termination case there is a guardian assigned to the child to represent the child's best interest. And so the role of the guardian ad litem is in court proceedings to provide advice as to what is the best interest of the child. And so in order to do this, you know, it requires conversations with the mother, um, the father, the caretakers, the child, if they are, you know, if they have the ability to communicate that, otherwise you kind of have to do it through observation. Um, and so it's, it's a, it's a critical role. It's an important role. And it's, um, there are, they do rely a lot on volunteers. And so it's, um, it's one of those roles that I encouraged everybody at our firm to do because there, there is such a need and it is so important. Um, and you just can't do it without that volunteer support. And I know that it's statewide. Uh, every, every circuit has their guardian ad litems, um, and, I would encourage people to to go out and volunteer for that as well. Absolutely. Um, so I know you uh, were in Orlando, but eventually you get hired uh, to come to the governor's office. Um, tell us uh, what role you served uh, in that office. Sure. So when I was, I, I kind of got recruited up to that office and I, um, you know, although I had spent a lot of time litigating, I had not spent any time in, in government. And so um, I was recruited up as a assistant general counsel and we had each assistant general counsel at the time in that office had a portfolio of, of various um, duties. And so my duties included some executive agencies, but also 
um, one of my primary duties was the judicial portfolio. So helping with vetting um, of individuals for appointments to the judicial nominating commissions and all of Florida's courts. You say you're back in the Capitol, which, you know, you, which you're, you were talking about when you were younger, you were running up mm-hmm. and down the stairs of, um, was it good to come back? It, it was very disorienting to come back. Um, I had I had very intentionally left Tallahassee. And so all of a sudden I find myself back there. I was pregnant with my first child at the time when I took that job. And so it was one of those, you can plan all you want and God will have different plans. And, um, but it was, it was nice to have that familiarity and to see how much Tallahassee had grown up. There's a lot better restaurants now. So that was a nice surprise. I know that we've had other people who have worked in the governor's office and they described working over certain agencies that all, all the councils had different agencies. Were there any specific agencies that you worked with? I, yeah, I mean, I, I had, so my portfolio varied. I, um, I worked pretty consistently with uh, Department of Management Services which prior to going into the governor's office, I had no idea what it did, but they basically are the agency that runs the agencies, you know, as one of the ways to put they it. They do the buildings, um, the, the, the employment, the HR, all of that, right? Right, right. right. So they touch a lot. Um, and so the general counsel at DMS and I worked very closely together for a very long time. And then um, I guess one of the more exciting agencies, especially toward the end, because Towards the end of the administration is when we had elections and recounts and all that drama. I was working, uh, Department of State was in my portfolio at the time. And so, um, because they were getting bombarded with litigation and then there was all of the just legal policy that went along with recounts, that was, that was also a, a pretty exciting agency to work with. What did you learn or what was your experience with just being back in public service or being in public service? Yeah. And so that was, that was my first foray into public service. And um, while I had always maintained civic engagement through volunteer work, I had never merged that interest with my career. And my biggest takeaway um, was that it, it, that opportunity demonstrated to me that a career in public service was possible and very gratifying. Um, And I worked for, at the time, the governor was just one of those um, kind of textbook servant leaders. And it was Governor Scott, right? It was Governor Scott, yeah. And um, I, you know, I had gone through my career always very motivated, but I was primarily motivated by winning, I guess you could say. Like I wanted to win the trial and I wanted to win the oral argument and I wanted to, you know, win the competition for the best bonus and build the most hours. And it was just, kind of like this constant mini competition against myself. And when I got into that job, um, my, my motivation completely flipped because the motivation in any public service job has to be the people and service. And so I became much more motivated, motivated by duty than anything else. And a lot of that was watching, um, the governor in action. And it, it, it was just, I learned it's just a much more gratifying way to go through life when you're serving others rather than serving yourself. And so I'm very grateful to the governor for showing me those lessons. He never explicitly said the words, but I definitely learned it from him. 
you were in the governor's office and then you kind of had a fast track through the Florida appellate system. Um, you were appointed in 2019. Was that Governor Scott? I That was Governor Scott, yes. Right. And you joined the 5th DCA and then you were appointed to the 6th DCA in 2023. Tell us about your experience on the appellate level versus litigation. I know you handled cases for the governor's office and in private practice, mostly. You said you did some appellate work, um, but the work is quite different, right? It is. It is. Going from an advocate to a, you know, neutral arbitrator, essentially. Um, but... I think what helped what helped my transition was two. One, one in the governor's office because I was doing um, a lot of vetting of judicial candidates. I had had a lot of time to think really deeply about what the role of a judge is, why I believe that the role of the judge should be what it is, um, and how that plays out in practice. And so I think because I had had the benefit of having two and a half years where where I was just really thinking deeply about judicial philosophy and having conversation after conversation on a daily basis with other people about their own judicial philosophy. When I started the job, um, I was very confident and clear in what my role was. So from there, it was just executing on that idea. And um, certainly that takes some getting used to. There's some there's a learning curve associated with any judge, no matter, or with any job, no matter how prepared you are. Um, but I, I had some other great colleagues on the court at the time, and it was really nice to be able to work with them, especially in those early days on the court. I guess when you were on the, on the fifth DCA, you were also on a rules committee or, or some kind of committee that looked at creating the sixth DCA. I mean, that was the yes. event. What committee was that? And I want to talk more about how that happened. Um, but what committee was it? Yeah, so there was there was a constitutional process. So the the Florida Constitution prescribes a process for evaluating the need for additional district courts. Um, and so that process was initiated by Chief Justice Kennedy at the time through the creation of a work group. It was a special Florida Supreme Court committee that he made appointments to. And so I was appointed to the committee that was tasked with evaluating whether or not there was a need for a sixth district. Um, We worked very closely with the staff at OSCA, the Office of State Courts Administrator, which was the first time I had really worked closely with OSCA staff. And um, I was just blown away by the level of professionalism and expertise uh, that we have in OSCA. They would pull together all sorts of statistics for us to evaluate. Um, We created a survey that we sent out to Florida bar members and just to interested stakeholders to get kind of qualitative factors on um, or qualitative information on whether or not there was a need for a sixth district. And then ultimately we pulled together a report to submit to the Supreme Court. And what kind of data did they provide? Was it cases, like the number of cases, the number of cases that weren't getting heard? What was the data that you were interested in or focused yeah, on? Yeah, so we, we took a look at, you know, population growth versus filings. Interestingly, population had been increasing in the state and appellate filings had be, been decreasing, which is somewhat counterintuitive. Um, we were also looking at it at a pretty difficult time because there was the COVID factor 
Um, and so uh, we were trying to, to look at cases long-term. We were looking at clearance rates. We got um, some t- statistics from judges on weighted workload. So there's a basically an um, equation that weights the complexity of cases and versus just the gross amount of cases. And from there, um, a weighted workload is assigned to each court. So we were looking at kind of actual weighted workloads versus ideal weighted workloads. But what ended up being dispositive of the determination was the public trust and confidence aspect. That is what ended up being the basis for the creation of the 6DCA. And um, kind of the amount of appointees who had come to the first DCA from Tallahassee versus Jacksonville and geographic diversity, those sorts of considerations ended up being what carried the day. And when you say geographic diversity, did you, uh, the 6DCA ended up being established in Lakeland, right? So were those Lakeland judges that were eventually appointed to that, or did they take judges from the other DCAs? Can you explain uh, yeah, that? Yeah, so that, yeah, that, that, uh, the, those factors, the geographic diversity and public trust and confidence went into the creation but then um, that was not any sort of constraint on the governor when he made appointments to the 6DCA. So the 6DCA was created by pulling partly from the 2nd DCA and partly from the 5th DCA to create a district that ran from Orlando down to Naples through the middle of the state. Um, and so by virtue of the implementing law, those of us who lived within the boundaries of the 6th district that had worked for the 5th or the 2nd were moved to the 6 DCA. So because of that, um, it was, see if I can remember, I think it was six of us from Orlando and one from Lakeland. Um, and then, so that allowed, no, it was five of us from Orlando, one from Lakeland, which allowed for three new appointments. I know that there's a lot of talk the last session about funding the 6 DCA and, and mm-hmm. where are we on that? So the, the, the actual CCA courthouse. Is, right, right. Yeah. So yeah, just to clarify, yeah, the 60C is fully funded, but it does not have a courthouse. They are currently homeless and uh, not <laughs> homeless. They're, they're currently using lease space, I guess I should say. Um, but the, the veto, the funding for the actual courthouse was vetoed two legislative sessions in a row. So that is, um, that'll be an issue that comes up this legislative session. Okay. And so are the judges, you're working in lease space, and I know all the judges now are working more remotely and coming in for oral arguments, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, that was that was actually in the legislation creating the 6CCA, encouraging um, the 6CCA to use technology to the extent possible. And so um, because there is the physical building in Lakeland where a lot of the day-to-day operations are run out of like the clerk's office, um, the judges have a separate office building for their physical offices, and then oral arguments rotate between the Ninth Circuit Courthouse and a building in Lakeland at um, Florida Southern College. And so, um, you know, shockingly, I, I think somewhat shockingly to me, because at the 5th CCA, everybody was requesting remote oral arguments at the 6th CCA. I did not have that experience. They, um, most people wanted their oral arguments in person. And I think that trend has continued. You end up 
where you are now. Uh, well, first of all, before that, you uh, end up being, I think, elected by your your peers, your other judges on the 6DCA to be the chief. Uh, yes. What what does the chief of a district court of appeal do in Florida? Yeah. So the chief judge, basically, I saw the role as taking on all the administrative tasks so all the other district court judges can do their job without needing to worry about the administrative tasks. Um, and it's not like the chief judge is not the boss of the other judges or anything like that. It's just the judge that's helping um, in the most in the administrative capacity. Of course, everything is a team effort and the judges as a majority vote for any sort of administrative policy. Um, but it was just, you know, a lot of working closely with the clerk's office, with the marshal's office, um, with OSCA, with the chief justice when needed, just to make sure that we need, we had everything we needed to dispose of cases quickly and efficiently. Well, I, um, have interviewed Judge Nordby from the first DCA, and I've spoken uh, friends with Stephanie Ray. She was chief judge of the first DCA. And other people that I've interviewed, judges, they talk about their sisters on the bench and how they're, it's nice to have camaraderie there. Can you tell us if that is the case with you or, or what your experience has been? Oh my gosh, I love my sisters-in-law, as I call them. <laughs> sisters-in-law, um, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. They, um, no, we have such a wonderful community on the district courts. Um, Stephanie Ray and Lori Rowe are two that I turned to immediately when this whole 60CA thing happened, and I realized I was going to be a chief because um, they're they're both just kind of cream of the crop to me. Um, and then, you know, we have the ability to talk to each other across DCAs. There's so many issues that we deal with that are similar, even though we have everybody runs their courts differently. Um, and we just we just have a great community. I talk to Judge Norby a lot. Uh, there's judges, of course, that I work with on my court. I was um, I started out on the 5th DCA with Jamie Grosshands, also as a 5th DCA judge. And um, on the 6th CCA, worked with Molly Nardella, Carrie Ann Wozniak. Um, we just, we really have a wonderful community. Well, we uh, interviewed Justice Grosshands shortly after she had been appointed as well. And at the time, she, since then, uh, there are now three female justices on the bench. And uh, she talked about uh, what it was like working at the Supreme Court and being assigned to as a liaison to certain Florida bar committees. Uh, or have you had a chance to start doing that as well? Yeah, I haven't done too much liaisoning yet, but, uh, <laughs> but I have my assignments. And um, I, I think it's a really interesting way to engage um, with some of the, the various committees I hadn't been closely working with, I was an appointed member of the appellate court rules committee. Um, but some of, some of the areas that I'm serving as liaison to, which includes uh, a lot of the district court accountability groups and the district court budget committee, I had been working with in my role as chief judge of the six. So there's some continuity there, which has been nice. Well, now that you have the platform of being a Supreme Court justice, what professional activities or projects would you encourage lawyers uh, in the state of Florida to participate or get involved in? 
Yeah, I mean, I I really um, encourage encourage people to get involved in the rules committees. It's they're so important, and um, you know, there's there's all sorts of committees that are doing important things. But I feel like maybe it's just my personality, but what the rules committee does is so concrete and it's so needed. Um, it's something that has an immediate impact and it requires really committed people and the best brains coming together to, um, to do what is really an expression of legal policy. I mean, that's really what the rule is. It's what is the policy going to be for the state of Florida? How are we going to um, conform rules to effectuate constitutional rights and that sort of thing? Uh, it's just a really, really important job. Was being a judge different than what is it? Is it now different than what you thought it would be when you were meeting with judges and you know when you were in law school and you were excited to you know have their their time? Yeah, I, I think it's um, it's probably a little different and probably similar to what I expected. Um, I think you know the the casework. I think a lot of people have an idea what a judge does with the, with the casework. Um, it's a very cloistered job. So I, I don't think it's for everyone. Um, I personally enjoy the solitude that comes with a lot of reading and writing. Um, but I guess what I didn't appreciate is how much it takes to be a self-governing branch. You know, we are, we are the independent judiciary. The chief justice is the head of our branch and it takes so many people and so many judges doing so much work beyond their job as a judge to keep the branch running. And I'm just constantly impressed by the people who are spending an extra 20 hours a week, you know, doing something that nobody knows they're doing. They aren't thanking them for them all that, you know, from the public facing standpoint, all people really see is what we do on the bench. Um, and I just, you know, to go back to the community of judges that we have, there's so many people who care so deeply about the state who are so service oriented and just want to do whatever they can to make sure that our branch is administering justice in the way that it needs to. Well, I was going to ask you what, uh, to talk about something that attorneys don't know about judges, but you just did that. Uh, what's your favorite part about being a judge or a justice now? Oh gosh. Yeah. My, my favorite part is the law. It's, it's just, this is one of the few jobs in the legal profession where you can look at the law purely. You know, it is, it is our job to say what the law is and um, being able to do that among a group of colleagues who also care deeply, more deeply about getting the right answer rather than proving themselves right. Um, it's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful job. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you. Uh, but before we leave, I'm going to ask you one final question. If you could give one piece of advice uh, to a new attorney in your courtroom, what would it be? So I think if I was going to give one piece of advice, there's so many. <laughs> um, but uh, maybe maybe a piece of advice they haven't heard on a regular basis would be um, when you're presenting arguments to think like a judge. I think that a lot of attorneys are brought up in law school kind of in the common law mindset of I need to make my argument and I need to cite cases. But we really operate in a positive law system. What we're usually arguing over is statutes, constitutional provisions, and rules. And so the way judges think is to first look at the statute, whatever the text is, um, apply that to the facts, and then we'll move to cases to see if there's anything supporting it. 
And I think that the more um, attorneys that use that structure in their argument, the more effective they'll be at um, convincing the judges that their argument is correct. Well, that was very helpful. Again, it was a pleasure to have you here today. And I really appreciate you taking time out to talk with us. Well, thank you so much for having me and for providing this service. This is another example of somebody with a full-time job who's doing this as a service to the bar and to the lawyers. So really thank you for your time. I'd like to thank Rebecca Bandy, Katie Young, and Clay Shaw for making us sound great. For more information about the Guardian Ad Litem program and to get the CLE number for this episode, check out the website where you find this podcast. 